0: CHAPTER 48 PART 2 OF THE DECLINE AND FALL OF THE ROMAN EMPIRE VOLUME 4 THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO VOLUNTEER PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG RECORDING BY Lizzie DRIVER THE DECLINE AND FALL OF THE ROMAN EMPIRE BY EDWARD GIBBON CHAPTER 48 succession and characters of the greek emperors part two in rewarding his allies and recalling his wife justinian displayed some sense of honour and gratitude and Tobelus retired after sweeping away a heap of gold coin which he measured with his scythian whip but never was a vow more religiously performed than the sacred oath of revenge which he had sworn amidst the storms of the yuxin the two usurpers for I must reserve the name of tyrant for the conqueror, were dragged into the Hippodrome, the one from his prison, the other from his palace. Before their execution, Leontius and Apsimar were cast prostrate in chains beneath the throne of the emperor, and Justinian, planting a foot in each of their necks, contemplated above an hour the chariot race, while the inconstant people shouted, in the words of the psalmist, "'thou shalt trample on the Asp and Basilisk, "'and on the Lion and Dragon shalt thou set thy foot.' "'The universal defection which he had once experienced "'might provoke him to repeat the wish of Caligula "'that the Roman people had but one head. "'Yet I shall presume to observe "'that such a wish is unworthy of an ingenious tyrant, "'since his revenge and cruelty "'would have been extinguished by a single blow.' "'instead of the slow variety of tortures "'which Justinian inflicted on the victims of his anger. "'His pleasures were inexhaustible. "'Neither private virtue nor public service "'could expiate the guilt of active "'or even passive obedience to an established government. "'And, during the six years of his new reign, "'he considered the axe, the cord, and the rack "'as the only instruments of royalty. "'But his most implacable hatred was pointed against the Charisonites, who had insulted his exile, and violated the laws of hospitality. Their remote situation afforded some means of defence, or at least of escape, and a grievous tax was imposed on Constantinople to supply the preparations of a fleet and army. All are guilty, and all must perish, was the mandate of Justinian and the bloody execution was entrusted to his favourite Stephen, who was recommended by the epithet of the savage. Yet even the savage Stephen imperfectly accomplished the intentions of his sovereign. The slowness of his attack allowed the greater part of the inhabitants to withdraw into the country, and the minister of vengeance contented himself with reducing the youth of both sexes to a state of servitude while roasting alive seven of the principal citizens, with drowning twenty in the sea, and reserving forty-two in chains to receive their doom from the mouth of the emperor. In their return, the fleet was driven on the rocky shores of Anatolia, and Justinian applauded the obedience of the Uxin, which had involved so many thousands of his subjects and enemies in a common shipwreck. But the tyrant was still insatiate of blood, and a second expedition was commanded to extirpate the remains of the proscribed colony. In the short interval, the CHARIZONITES had returned to their city and were prepared to die in arms. The khan of the SHAZARS had renounced the cause of his odious brother. The exiles of every province were assembled in Tauris, and Bardanes, under the name of Philippicus, was invested with the purple. The imperial troops, unwilling and unable to perpetrate the revenge of Justinian, escaped his displeasure by abjuring his allegiance. The fleet, under their new sovereign, steered back a more auspicious course to the harbors of Sinope and Constantinople, and every tongue was prompt to pronounce, every hand to execute, the death of the tyrant. Destitute of friends, he was deserted by his barbarian guards. "'and the stroke of the assassin was praised as an act of patriotism and Roman virtue. "'His son Tiberius had taken refuge in a church. "'His aged grandmother guarded the door, "'and the innocent youth, suspending round his neck the most formidable relics, "'embraced with one hand the altar, with the other the wood of the true cross. "'But the popular fury that dares to trample on superstition "'is deaf to the cries of humanity.' and the race of Heraclius was extinguished after a reign of one hundred years. Between the fall of the Heraclion and the rise of the Assyrian dynasty, a short interval of six years is divided into three reigns. Bardanes or Philippicus, was hailed at Constantinople as a hero who had delivered his country from a tyrant, and you might taste some moments of happiness in the first transports of sincere and universal joy. Justinian had left behind him an ample treasure, the fruit of cruelty and rapine. But this useful fund was soon and idly dissipated by his successor. On the festival of his birthday, Philippicus entertained the multitude with the games of the Hippodrome. From thence he paraded through the streets with a thousand banners and a thousand trumpets, refreshed himself in the baths of Zippicus, and returning to the palace entertained his nobles with a sumptuous banquet at the meridian hour he withdrew to his chamber intoxicated with flattery and wine and forgetful that his example had made every subject ambitious and that every ambitious subject was his secret enemy some bold conspirators introduced themselves in the disorder of the feast and the slumbering monarch was surprised bound blinded and opposed before he was sensible of his danger Yet, the traitors were deprived of their reward, and the free voice of the senate and people prompted Artemius from the office of security to that of emperor. He assumed the title of Anastasius the Second and displayed in a short and troubled reign the virtues both of peace and war. But after the extinction of the imperial line, the rule of obedience was violated. AND EVERY CHANGE DIFFUSED THE SEEDS OF NEW REVOLUTIONS. IN A MUTINY OF THE feet, AN OBSCURE AND RELUCTANT OFFICER OF THE REVENUE WAS FORCIBLY INVESTED WITH THE PURPLE. AFTER SOME MONTHS OF A NAVAL WAR, ANASTASIUS RESIGNED THE sceptre, AND THE CONQUEROR, THEODOSIUS Third SUBMITTED IN HIS TURN TO THE SUPREME ASCENDANCE OF LEO, THE GENERAL AND EMPEROR OF THE ORIENTAL TROOPS his two predecessors were permitted to embrace the ecclesiastical profession. The restless impatience of Anastasius tempted him to risk and to lose his life in a treasonable enterprise. But the last days of Theodosius were honourable and secure. The single sublime word, health, which he inscribed on his tomb, expresses the confidence of philosophy or religion, and the fame of his miracles was long preserved among the people of ephesus their convenient shelter of the church might sometimes impose a lesson of clemency but it may be questioned whether it is for the public interest to diminish the perils of unsuccessful ambition i have dwelt on the fall of a tyrant i shall briefly represent the founder of a new dynasty who is known to posterity by the invectives of his enemies and whose public and private life is involved in the ecclesiastical story of the iconoclasts yet in spite of the clamours of superstition a favourable prejudice for the character of leo the isaurian may be reasonably drawn from the obscurity of his birth and the duration of his reign one in an age of manly spirit the prospect of an imperial reward would have kindled every energy of the mind and produced a crowd of competitors as deserving as they were desirous to reign. Even in the corruption and debility of the modern Greeks, the elevation of a plebeian from the last to the first rank of society supposes some qualifications above the level of the multitude. He would probably be ignorant and disdainful of speculative science, and, in the pursuit of fortune, he might absolve himself from the obligations of benevolence and justice, but to his character we may ascribe the useful virtues of prudence and fortitude, the knowledge of mankind, and the important art of gaining their confidence and directing their passions. It is agreed that Leo was a native of Isoria, and that Conon was his primitive name. The writers, whose awkward satire is praise, describe him as an itinerant peddler, who drove an ass with some paltry merchandise to the country fairs, and foolishly relate that he met on the road some Jewish fortune-tellers, who promised him the Roman Empire, on condition that he should abolish the worship of idols. A more probable account relates the migration of his father from Asia Minor to Thrace, where he exercised the lucrative trade of a grazier, and he must have acquired considerable wealth, since the first introduction of his son was procured by a supply of five hundred sheep to the imperial camp his first service was in the guard of justinian where he soon attracted the notice and by degrees the jealousy of the tyrant his valor and dexterity were conspicuous in the colchian war from anastasius he received the command of the anatolian legions and by the suffrage of the soldiers he was raised to the empire with the general applause of the roman world two in this dangerous elevation lear the third supported himself against the envy of his equals the discontent of a powerful faction and the assaults of his foreign and domestic enemies the catholics who accuse his religious innovations are obliged to confess that they were undertaken with temper and conducted with firmness Their silence respects the wisdom of his administration and the purity of his manners after a reign of twenty four years he peaceably expired in the palace of Constantinople, and the purple which he had acquired was transmitted by the right of inheritance to the third generation. In a long reign of thirty-four years, the son and successor of Leo, Constantine V, surnamed Copronymus, attacked with less temperate zeal the images or idols of the church. Their votaries have exhausted the bitterness of religious gall. In their portrait of this spotted panther, this antichrist, this flying dragon of the serpent's seed, who surpassed the vices of Agabalus and Nero. His reign was a long butchery of whatever was most noble, or holy, or innocent in his empire. In person, the emperor assisted at the execution of his victims, surveyed their agonies, listened to their groans, and indulged, without satiating, his appetite for blood. A plate of noses was accepted as a grateful offering, and his domestics were often scourged or mutilated by the royal hand. His surname was derived from his pollution of his baptismal font. The infant might be excused, but the manly pleasures of Corporanimus degraded him below the level of a brute. His lust confounded the eternal distinctions of sex and species. And he seemed to extract some unnatural delight from the objects most offensive to human sense. In his religion, the iconoclast was a heretic, a Jew, a Mohammedan, a pagan, and an atheist, and his belief of an invisible power could be discovered only in his magic rites, human victims, and nocturnal sacrifices to Venus and the demons of antiquity. His life was stained with the most opposite vices and the ulcers which covered his body, anticipated before his death the sentiment of hell-tortures. Of these accusations, which I have so patiently copied, a part is refuted by its own absurdity, and in the private anecdotes of the life of the princes, the lie is more easy, as the detection is more difficult. Without adopting the pernicious maxim, that where much is alleged, something must be true, I can, however, discern that Constantine V was dissolute and cruel. Culminy is more prone to exaggerate than to invent, and her licentious tongue is checked in some measure by the experience of the age and country to which she appeals. Of the bishops and monks, the generals and magistrates, who are said to have suffered under his reign, the numbers are recorded, the names were conspicuous, the execution was public, the mutilation visible and permanent. THE CATHOLICS HATED THE PERSON AND GOVERNMENT OF Copronymus, BUT EVEN THEIR HATRED IS A PROOF OF THEIR OPPRESSION. THEY DISSEMBLED THE PROVOCATIONS WHICH MIGHT EXCUSE OR JUSTIFY HIS RIGOUR, BUT EVEN THESE PROVOCATIONS MUST GRADUALLY INFLAME HIS RESENTMENT AND HARDEN HIS TEMPER IN THE USE OR THE ABUSE OF DESPOTISM. YET THE CHARACTER OF THE FIFTH CONSTANTINE WAS NOT DEVOID OF MERIT nor did his government always deserve the curses or the contempt of the Greeks. From the confession of his enemies, I am informed of the restoration of an ancient aqueduct, of the redemption of two thousand five hundred captives, of the uncommon plenty of the times, and of the new colonies with which he repeopled Constantinople and the Thracian cities. They reluctantly praise his activity and courage, he was on horseback in the field at the head of his legions, and although the fortune of his arms was various, he triumphed by sea and land, on the Euphrates and the Danube, in civil and barbarian war. Heretical praise must be cast into the scale to counterbalance the weight of orthodox invective. The iconoclasts revered the virtues of the prince. Forty years after his death, they still prayed before the tomb of the saint. A miraculous vision was propagated by fanaticism or fraud, and the Christian hero appeared on a milk-white steed, brandishing his lance against the pagans of Bulgaria. An absurd fable, says the Catholic historian, since Copronymus is chained with the demons in the abyss of hell. Leo the Fourth, the son of the Fifth and the father of the Sixth Constantine, was of a feeble constitution both of mind and body and the principal care of his reign was the settlement of his succession the association of the young constantine was urged by the officious zeal of his subjects and the emperor conscious of his decay complied after a prudent hesitation with their unanimous wishes the royal infant at the age of five years was crowned with his mother irene and the national consent was ratified by every circumstance of pomp and solemnity that could dazzle the eyes or bind the conscience of the Greeks. An oath of fidelity was administrated in the palace, the church, and the hippodrome, to the several orders of the state, who adjured the holy names of the Son and the Mother of God. Be witness, O Christ, that we will watch over the safety of Constantine, the son of Leo, expose our lives in his service, and bear true allegiance to his person and posterity, they pledged their faith on the wood of the true cross and the act of their engagement was deposited on the altar of saint sophia the first to swear and the first to violate their oath were the five sons of Copronymus by a second marriage and the story of these princes is singular and tragic the right of primogeniture excluded them from the throne the injustice of their elder brother defrauded them on a legacy of about two million sterling. Some vain titles were not deemed a sufficient compensation for wealth and power, and they repeatedly conspired against their nephew, before and after the death of his father. Their first attempt was pardoned. For the second offence, they were condemned to the ecclesiastical state, and for the third treason, Nick Furious, the eldest and most guilty, was deprived of his eyes, and his four brothers, Christopher, Nictas, Anthemius, and Eudoxus, were punished, as the milder sentence, by the amputation of their tongues. After five years' confinement they escaped to the church of St. Sophia, and displayed a pathetic spectacle to the people. "'Countrymen and Christians,' cried Nicphorus, for himself and his mute brethren." "'Behold the sons of your emperor, "'if you can still recognize our features in this miserable state. "'A life, an imperfect life, "'is all that the malice of our enemies has spared. "'It is now threatened, "'and we now throw ourselves on your compassion.' "'The rising murmur might have produced a revolution, "'had it not been checked by the presence of a minister, "'who soothed the unhappy princes with flattery and hope, "'and gently drew them from the sanctuary to the palace.' They were speedily embarked for Greece, and Athens was allotted for the place of their exile. In this calm retreat, and in their helpless condition, Nicphorus and his brothers were tormented by the thirst of power, and tempted by a Sclavonian chief, who offered to break their prison and to lead them in arms and in the purple to the gates of Constantinople. But the Athenian people, ever zealous in the cause of Irene, prevented her justice or cruelty and the five sons of copronimus were plunged in eternal darkness and oblivion for himself that emperor had chosen a barbarian wife the daughter of the khan of the shazars but in the marriage of his heir he preferred an athenian virgin an orphan seventeen years old whose sole fortune must have consisted in her personal accomplishments the nuptials of leo and irene were celebrated with royal pomp she soon acquired the love and confidence of a feeble husband and in his testament he declared the empress guardian of the roman world and of their son constantine the sixth who was no more than ten years of age during his childhood irene most ably and assiduously discharged in her public administration the duties of a faithful mother AND HER ZEAL IN THE RESTORATION OF IMAGES HAS DESERVED THE NAME AND HONORS OF A SAINT, WHICH SHE STILL OCCUPIES IN THE GREEK CALENDAR. BUT THE EMPEROR ATTAINED THE MATURITY OF YOUTH. THE MATERNAL YOKE BECAME MORE GRIEVOUS, AND HE LISTENED TO THE FAVORITES OF HIS OWN AGE, WHO SHARED HIS PLEASURES, AND WERE AMBITIOUS OF SHARING HIS POWER. THEIR REASONS CONVINCED HIM OF HIS RIGHT, THEIR PRAISES OF HIS ABILITY TO REIGN. And he consented to reward the services of Irene by a perpetual banishment to the isles of Sicily. But her vigilance and penetration easily disconcerted their rash projects. A similar or more severe punishment was retaliated on themselves and their advisers, and Irene inflicted on the ungrateful prince the chastisement of a boy. After this contest, the mother and the son were at the head of two domestic factions and instead of mild influence and voluntary obedience she held in chains a captive and an enemy the empress was overthrown by the abuse of victory the oath of fidelity which she extracted to herself alone was pronounced with reluctant murmurs and the bold refusal of the armenian guards encouraged a free and general declaration that constantine the sixth was the lawful emperor of the romans In this character he ascended his hereditary throne, and dismissed Irene to a life of solitude and repose. But her haughty spirit condescended to the arts of dissimulation. She flattered the bishops and eunuchs, revived the filial tenderness of the prince, regained his confidence, and betrayed his credulity. The character of Constantine was not destitute of sense or spirit, but his education had been studiously neglected, AND THE AMBITIOUS MOTHER EXPOSED TO THE PUBLIC CENSURE THE VICES WHICH SHE HAD NOURISHED AND THE ACTIONS WHICH SHE HAD SECRETLY ADVISED. HIS DIVORCE AND SECOND MARRIAGE OFFENDED THE PREJUDICES OF THE CLERGY, AND BY HIS IMPRUDENT RIGOUR HE FORTIFIED THE ATTACHMENT OF THE ARMENIAN GUARDS. A POWERFUL CONSPIRACY WAS FORMED FOR THE RESTORATION OF IRENE, AND THE SECRET, THOUGH WIDELY diffused, WAS FAITHFULLY KEPT ABOVE EIGHT MONTHS till the emperor suspicious of his danger escaped from constantinople with the design of appealing to the provinces and armies by this hasty flight the empress was left on the brink of the precipice yet before she implored the mercy of her son irene addressed a private epistle to the friends whom she had placed about her person with a menace that unless they accomplished she would reveal their treason Their fear rendered them intrepid. They seized the emperor on the Asiatic shore, and he was transported to the porphyry apartment of the palace, where he had first seen the light. In the mind of Irene, ambition had stifled every sentiment of humanity and nature, and it was decreed in her bloody council that Constantine should be rendered incapable of the throne. Her emissaries assaulted the sleeping prince— and stabbed their daggers with such violence and precipitation into his eyes as if they meant to execute a mortal sentence an ambiguous passage of theophanes persuaded the analyst of the church that death was the immediate consequence of this barbarous execution the catholics had been deceived or subdued by the authority of baronius and protestant zeal has re-echoed the words of a cardinal desirous it should seem to favour the patroness of images Yet the blind son of Irene survived many years, oppressed by the court and forgotten by the world. The Asaurian dynasty was silently extinguished, and the memory of Constantine was recalled only by the nuptials of his daughter, Euphrosyne, with the emperor Michael II. The most bigoted orthodoxy has just excreated the unnatural mother, who may not easily be paralleled in the history of crimes to her bloody deed superstition has attributed a subsequent darkness of seventeen days during which many vessels in midday were driven from their course as if the sun a globe of fire so vast and so remote could sympathize with the atoms of a revolving planet on earth the crime of irene was left five years unpunished her reign was crowned with external splendor and if she could silence the voice of conscience she neither heard nor regarded the reproaches of mankind the roman world bowed to the government of a female and as she moved through the streets of constantinople the reins of four milk-white steeds were held by as many patricians who marched on foot before the golden chariot of their queen but these patricians were for the most part eunuchs and their black ingratitude justified on this occasion the popular hatred and contempt. Raised, enriched, entrusted, with the first dignities of the empire, they basely conspired against their benefactress. The great treasurer, Nicophorus, was secretly invested with the purple. Her successor was introduced into the palace, and crowned at Saint-Sophia by the venial patriarch in their first interview she recapitulated with dignity the revolutions of her life gently accused the perfidy of nicophorus insinuated that he owed his life to her unsuspicious clemency and for the thrones and treasures which she had resigned solicitated a decent and honourable retreat his avarice refused this modest compensation and in her exile of the isle of lesbos "'the Empress earned a scanty subsistence "'by the labours of her distaff. "'Many tyrants have reigned "'undoubtedly more criminal than Nikephorus, "'but none perhaps have more deeply incurred "'the universal abhorrence of their people. "'His character was stained with three odious vices "'of hypocrisy, ingratitude, and avarice. "'His want of virtue was not redeemed "'by any superior talents, "'nor his want of talents by any pleasing qualifications.' unskillful and unfortunate in war nicophorus was vanquished by the saracens and slain by the bulgarians and the advantage of his death overbalanced in the public opinion the destruction of a roman army his son and heir staracius escaped from the field with a mortal wound yet six months of an expiring life were sufficient to refute his indecent though popular deceleration that he would in all things avoid the example of his father. On the near prospect of his decease, Michael, the great master of the palace, and husband of his sister, Procopia, was named by every person of the palace and city, except by his envious brother. Tenacious of a sceptre now falling from his hand, he conspired against the life of his successor, and cherished the idea of changing to a democracy the Roman Empire. But these rash projects served only to inflame the zeal of the people, and to remove the scruples of the candidate. Michael I accepted the purple, and before he sunk into the grave, the son of Nicophorus implored the clemency of his new sovereign. Had Michael, in an age of peace, ascended an hereditary throne— he might have reigned and died the father of his people but his mild virtues were adapted to the shade of private life nor was he capable of controlling the ambition of his equals or of resisting the armies of the victorious bulgarians while his want of ability and success exposed him to the contempt of the soldiers the masculine spirit of his wife procopia awakened their indignation even the greeks of the ninth century were provoked by the insolence of a female who in the front of the standards presumed to direct their discipline and animate their valour and their licentious clamours advised the new semiramis to reverence the majesty of a roman camp after an unsuccessful campaign in their winter quarters of thrace a disaffected army under the command of his enemies and their artful eloquence persuaded the soldiers to break the dominion of the eunuchs to degrade the husband of Procopia, and to assert the right of a military election they marched towards the capital yet the clergy the senate and the people of constantinople adhered to the cause of michael and the troops and treasures of asia might have protracted the mischiefs of civil war but his humanity by the ambitious it will be termed his weakness protested that not a drop of Christian blood should be shed in his quarrel. And his messengers presented the conquerors with the keys of the city and the palace. They were disarmed by his innocence and submission. His life and his eyes were spared, and the imperial monk enjoyed the comforts of solitude and religion above thirty-two years after he had been stripped of the purple and separated from his wife. The famous and unfortunate Bardenese had once the curiosity to consult an Asiatic prophet, who, after prognosticating his fall, announced the fortunes of his three principal officers, Leo the Armenian, Michael the Phrygian, and Thomas the Cappadocian, the successive reigns of the two former, the fruitless and fatal enterprise of the third. This prediction was verified, or rather was produced, by the event Ten years afterwards, when the Thracian camp rejected the husband of Procopia, the crown was presented to the same Leo, the first in military rank and the second author of the mutiny. As he affected to hesitate, "'With this sword,' says his companion Michael, "'I will open the gates of Constantinople to your imperial sway, "'or instantly plunge it into your bosom "'if you obstinately resist the just desires of your fellow soldiers.' The compliance of the Armenian was rewarded with the empire, and he reigned seven and a half years under the name of Leo V. Educated in a camp, and ignorant both of laws and letters, he introduced into his civil government the rigour and even cruelty of military discipline. But if his severity was sometimes dangerous to the innocent, it was always formidable to the guilty his religious inconstancy was taxed by the epithet of chameleon but the catholics have acknowledged by the voice of a saint and confessors that the life of the iconoclast was useful to the republic the zeal of his companion michael was repaid with riches honors and military command and his subordinate talents were beneficially employed in the public service yet the phrygian was dissatisfied at receiving as a favour a scanty portion of the imperial prize which he had bestowed on his equal and his discontent which sometimes evaporated in hasty discourse at length assumed a more threatening and hostile aspect against a prince whom he respected as a cruel tyrant that tyrant however repeatedly detected warned and dismissed the old companion of his arms till fear and resentment prevailed over gratitude, and Michael, after a scrutiny into his actions and designs, was convicted of treason, and sentenced to be burnt alive in the furnace of the private baths. The devout humanity of the Empress Theophano was fatal to her husband and family. A solemn day, the 25th of December, had been fixed for the execution, she urged that the anniversary of the saviour's birth would be profound by this inhuman spectacle, and Leo consented with reluctance to a decent respite. But on the vigil of the feast his sleepless anxiety prompted him to visit at the dead of night, the chamber in which his enemy was confined. He beheld him released from his chain, and stretched on his jailer's bed in a profound slumber. Leo was alarmed at these signs of security and intelligence— But though he retired with silent steps his entrance and departure were noticed by a slave who lay concealed in a corner of the prison under the pretence of requesting the spiritual aid of a confessor Michael informed the conspirators that their lives depended on his discretion and that a few hours were left to assure their own safety but the deliverance of their friend and country on the great festival a chosen band of priests and chanters was admitted into the palace by a private gate to sing Matins in the chapel, and Leo, who regulated with the same strictness the discipline of the choir and of the camp, was seldom absent from these early devotions. In the ecclesiastical habit, but with their swords under their robes, the conspirators mingled with the procession, lurked in the angles of the chapel, and expected, as the sign of murder, the intonation of the first psalm by the emperor himself. The imperfect light and the uniformity of dress might have favored his escape, whilst their assault was pointed against a harmless priest, but they soon discovered their mistake, and encompassed on all sides the royal victim. Without a weapon and without a friend, he grasped a weighty cross and stood at bay against the hunters of his life. But as he asked for mercy, this is the hour, not of mercy, but of vengeance, was the inexorable reply. The stroke of a well-aimed sword separated from his body the right arm and the cross and Leo the Armenian was slain at the foot of the altar a memorial reverse of fortune was displayed in Michael the second who from a defect in his speech was surnamed the stammerer he was snatched from the fiery furnace to the sovereignty of an empire and as in the tumult a Smith could not readily be found the fetters remained on his legs several hours after he was seated on the throne of the Caesars. The royal blood, which had been the price of his elevation, was unprofitably spent. In the purple he retained the ignoble vices of his origin, and Michael lost his provinces with a supine indifference as if they had been the inheritance of his father's. His title was disputed by Thomas, the last of the military triumvirate who transported into Europe fourscore thousand barbarians from the banks of the Tigris and the shores of the Caspian. He formed the siege of Constantinople, but the capital was defended with spiritual and carnal weapons. A Bulgarian king assaulted the camp of the Orientals, and Thomas had the misfortune, or the weakness, to fall alive into the power of the conqueror. The hands and feet of the rebel were amputated, he was placed on an ass and amidst the insults of the people was led through the streets which he sprinkled with his blood the deprivation of manners as savage as they were corrupt is marked by the presence of the emperor himself deaf to the lamentation of a fellow soldier he incessantly pressed the discovery of more accomplices till his curiosity was checked by the question of an honest or guilty minister would you give credit to an enemy against the most faithful of your friends? After the death of his first wife, the emperor, at the request of the senate, drew from her monastery Euphrosyne, the daughter of Constantine the Sixth. Her august birth might justify a stipulation in the marriage contract that her children should equally share the empire with their elder brother. But the nuptials of Michael and Euphrosyne were barren and she was content with the title of mother of theophilus his son and successor the character of theophilus is a rare example in which religious zeal has allowed and perhaps magnified the virtues of a heretic and a persecutor his valor was often felt by the enemies and his justice by the subjects of the monarchy but the valor of theophilus was rash and fruitless and his justice arbitrary and cruel. He displayed the banners of the cross against the Saracens, but his five expeditions were concluded by a signal overthrow. Amorium, the native city of his ancestors, was levelled with the ground, and from his military toils he derived only the surname of the unfortunate. The wisdom of a sovereign is comprised in his institution of laws and the choice of his magistrates and while he seems without action his civil government revolves around his centre with the silence and order of the planetary system but the justice of theophilus was fashioned on the model of the oriental despots who in personal and irregular acts of authority consult the reason or passions of the moment without measuring the sentence by the law or the penalty by the offence A poor woman threw herself at the emperor's feet to complain of a powerful neighbour, the brother of the empress, who had raised his palace wall to such an inconvenient height that her humble dwelling was excluded from light and air. On the proof of the fact, instead of granting, like an ordinary judge, sufficient or ample damages to the plaintiff, the sovereign adjudged to her use and benefit the palace and the ground, nor was Theophilus content with this extravagant satisfaction. His zeal converted a civil trespass into a criminal act, and the unfortunate patrician was stripped and scourged in the public place of Constantinople. For some venial offences, some defect of equity or vigilance, the principal ministers, a prefect, a quaestor, a captain of the guards, were banished or mutilated, or scalded with boiling pitch, or burnt alive in the hippodrome and as these dreadful examples might be the effects of error or caprice, they must have alienated from his service the best and wisest of the citizens. But the pride of the monarch was flattered in the exercise of power, or, as he thought, of virtue, and the people, safe in their obscurity, applauded the danger and debasement of their superiors. This extraordinary rigour was justified, in some measure, by its salutary consequences since, after a scrutiny of seventeen days, not a complaint or abuse could be found in the court or city, and it might be alleged that the Greeks could be ruled only with a rod of iron, and that the public interest is the motive and law of the supreme judge. Yet in the crime, or the suspicion of treason, that judge is of all others the most crudulous and partial. Theophilus might inflict a tardy vengeance, On the assassins of leo and the saviors of his father but he enjoyed the fruits of their crime and his jealous tyranny sacrificed a brother and a prince to the future safety of his life a persian of the race of the sassanides died in poverty and exile at constantinople leaving only a son the issue of a plebeian marriage at the age of twelve years the royal birth of theophobius was revealed and his merit was not unworthy of his birth he was educated in the byzantine palace a christian and a soldier advanced with rapid steps in the career of fortune and glory received the hand of the emperor's sister and was promoted to the command of thirty thousand persians who like his father had fled from the Mahometan conquerors these troops doubly infected with mercenary and fanatic vices were desirous of revolting against their benefactor, and erecting the standard of their native king. But the loyal Theophobius rejected their offers, disconcerted their schemes, and escaped from their hands to the camp or palace of his royal brother. A generous confidence might have secured a faithful and able guardian for his wife and his infant son, to whom Theophilus, in the flower of his age, was compelled to leave the inheritance of the empire, but his jealousy was exasperated by envy and disease. He feared the dangerous virtues which might either support or oppress their infancy and weakness. And the dying emperor demanded the head of the Persian prince. With savage delight he recognized the familiar features of his brother. "'Thou art no longer Theophobius," he said, and, sinking on his couch, he added, with a faltering voice, Soon, too soon, I shall be no more Theophilus End of chapter forty eight part two